All right, turn in your Bible, if you would, to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation 11. We're continuing here in the judgment section of the book of Revelation, which details the judgment that is coming against Israel and Jerusalem for their rejection of Jesus. After the vision of Jesus and the letters to the seven churches at the beginning of the book, we saw the slain lamb who took the scroll with seven seals so that he could open the seals and bring about, unfold the judgments that were decreed in it. And when the seventh seal was finally opened, a series of seven trumpet judgments began. And we've seen six of those judgments so far, and then an interlude where some other things have happened. And today we're going to reach finally that seventh trumpet judgment. And the message this morning will be a little bit different. It's going to be in three parts. The first part is the explanation of the text. And then we're going to talk for a longer period of time about the doctrine that's here. And specifically, the big picture view of eschatology or end times that we've been seeing in the book of Revelation. In our response time after the message, we have talked in past weeks a number of different times about the different ways of interpreting Revelation. And this morning, we're going to outline that just in a little bit more detail, a little more systematically. And then as we finish, the final part is I want to talk about why this is important. What use does it have in your life? What difference does it make? So Revelation 11, and we're going to be in verses 15 through 19 this morning. So follow along as I read. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Well, we've seen the six trumpets, the first six so far, and they involved times of suffering in Jerusalem and Judea, God's judgment coming on the temple and the Jews in AD 70 and the years leading up to it. Those first four trumpet judgments we found were very similar to the plagues in Egypt. That's the language that they were described in. And then the fifth and sixth trumpets were successive invasions, first of demons and then of the Roman army. Then we had an interlude during which we saw that the mystery was being fulfilled. The mystery, the New Testament teaches, is the church, the true Israel made up of Jew and Gentile together in one people. And we saw John take the scroll and eat it as instructed. And it was both sweet and bitter. Sweet because the saints' prayers for vindication were being answered, but bitter because Israel was being judged. And then we saw a temple being measured, which indicated the church, the new temple. 
being established and preserved by God despite the judgment that was falling. And we saw the two witnesses, which are the lampstands and the olive trees, representing the church again, this time as the new covenant fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And they bear witness, as the law and the prophets do, to the truth of Jesus, which means that they bear witness, the law and the prophets do, to the church as the true heirs of the law and the prophets. They're the ones who truly believe the message. And at the same time, then, they bear witness against Israel and Jerusalem because they have rejected Jesus as Messiah. Well, now we come to the seventh trumpet, which is the final judgment against Jerusalem and the temple. This is what happens in A.D. 70, and it represents this completion of the judgment that falls as the temple is destroyed and Jerusalem is decimated. And those who have died in the Lord are vindicated, while the Jews who rejected Jesus are destroyed. The earthly temple has fallen, the heavenly temple is opened, and the transition from the old covenant to the new covenant is complete as Jesus now reigns in his kingdom. Okay, so let's go through it step by step. In verse 15, we read that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. In other words, we're seeing the fulfillment of the vision in Daniel chapter 2. King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, you'll remember, which Daniel interpreted. And the dream was of a giant statue of a man, which represented the kingdom of the world. And the statue was made of four parts. It had a head of gold, a chest of arms and, sil and arms of silver, waist and thighs of bronze, and then legs of iron with feet that were partly iron and partly clay. And then a stone that was cut out by no human hand came and struck the image, the statue, breaking it into pieces and scattering the pieces in the wind. And then the stone became a great mountain that filled the whole earth. That's the vision of Daniel chapter 2. Well, the four parts of the statue represented four great world empires from the time of Daniel to the time of Jesus. The Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. And the stone represents the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Christ. And the key for our text today comes in Daniel chapter 2, verses 44 and 45. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. So there's three things you need to notice in those two verses there. First, this kingdom is set up by God. That's why it's a stone that's not cut by human hands. It's the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Christ. Second, the kingdom is eternal. It will never be replaced by another. You can remember Jesus saying that what the parable, for instance, of the vineyard, it's going to be taken away and given to a people bearing the fruit of it. That's what Jesus teaches about the kingdom. But this kingdom, the kingdom of Christ, that'll never happen to. This kingdom will be eternal. So third, what's the timing of the kingdom? 
When does it appear? In the days of those kings. The days of which kings? The kings of the four empires in the dream. So this is God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, Christ's kingdom, his eternal kingdom, the one that the Old Testament prophets have been pointing to all along. God says it will begin in the days of those kings. Christ's eternal kingdom begins in the days of those kings. Now, what did we just read in Revelation 11, verse 15? The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Christ's eternal kingdom has begun. Okay? Then we have the 24 elders worshiping in song. They give thanks because Jesus has begun to reign. In other words, they're giving thanks because Jesus has executed judgment on Israel and has vindicated the Christian martyrs. That was part of establishing his kingdom. The demonstration that the Jews were wrong to reject him. They're condemned by the witness of the church to the beginning of the kingdom of Christ. And notice that our text specifically says in verse 17 that Jesus has already begun to reign at this point. So when the judgment of AD 70 falls, it's confirmation that Jesus is on his throne. He has been vindicated. He's beginning now to put all his enemies under his feet and he begins with the Jews who rejected him. So verse 18 tells us then that the nations raged. Israel raged against God by raging against the Christians. And Rome and her allies raged against Israel and against the Christians. But this phrasing is a reference to Psalm 2, which we've looked at a number of times. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? And that whole psalm is about the enthronement of the Messiah king. The psalm says God has set his king on Zion. He is enthroned. And not only that, but God will make the nations to be Messiah's heritage. He will rule over the nations. And the rulers of those nations are summoned to serve the Lord. In other words, it's, it's the universal worldwide rule of the Messiah King. It's the kingdom of Christ. And John, in Revelation, signals that Psalm 2 is fulfilled by saying that at the beginning of his reign, the nations raged. But the Messiah King is now on his throne, ruling over all the nations of the earth. And our text says that God's wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged. So the verdict is now rendered. When God's judgment comes, the dead, here it's specifically talking about those who died as martyrs for Christ, they're vindicated. The judgment is that they were in the right. They were loyal to Messiah. So they are rewarded with the prophets and those who fear God's name, both small and great. But at the same time, God's wrath came and the destroyers of the earth were destroyed. The destroyers are those who are fighting against God and against Christ. So the judgment of AD 70, which falls on Jerusalem and the temple, is Jesus's judgment on the land. And it serves two purposes at the same time. On the one hand, it's judgment against the Jews for rejecting and murdering him. The legal testimony has been established. 
We have the word of the two witnesses. The judgment is righteous. Okay? And in AD 70, that judgment falls. It's executed. On the other hand, this judgment is a judgment in favor of the righteous. The faithful Christians, those who suffered or were martyred for Christ during this time, they are now seen to be in the right. God, God's siding with them. Jesus' judgment has been given. And then another confirmation of the judgment against Jerusalem and the temple comes in verse 19. The temple in heaven is opened and the Ark of the Covenant is seen. The Ark, remember, symbolizes the presence of God. When Jesus died on the cross, the veil of the temple was torn apart. It had hidden the Ark in the past. And this opening of the veil signaled that the way was now open to come to God through Christ, our heavenly priest, not through an earthly priest. And that means that the whole temple system, with all of its sacrifices, all of that is now obsolete. So let me point out three things here. First, when the temple veil was torn open, could the Ark of the Covenant be seen in the temple in Jerusalem? No, it wasn't there. It never had been. The temple, the Ark was there in the first temple, in Solomon's temple, but the Ark was lost in the Babylonian exile. There never was an Ark of the Covenant in the second temple. God never came to that temple. If you remember like when Solomon dedicates the temple, there's all of these amazing heavenly signs and smoke fills the temple and all of that stuff that happens, same as it did in the tabernacle when the tabernacle was first built. In the second temple, that doesn't happen. God's presence never came. Remember Ezekiel's vision of the, the glory departing the temple. This temple was always empty. And second, in verse 19, the temple in heaven is opened and the ark is there. God's presence is there. So remember what we've seen in previous weeks. The temple is the church. Okay? We're told we are the temple of the living God. And God's presence is now seen in the midst of that temple. His people. His presence is in his church. And third, the message of Hebrews tells us that the whole sacrificial system is now obsolete because Jesus is better. Now that Jesus has come, it's no longer needed or useful. Hebrews 8 talks about how Jesus is the ultimate high priest. And then the chapter finishes with this verse. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. What does the author of Hebrews think is obsolete and growing old and ready to vanish away? Well, he's writing before the destruction of the temple in AD 70. He's saying that the whole temple system is about to be done away with. It's obsolete. And this is connected with the new covenant that has been inaugurated, has, be, has begun now. So Jesus introduced the new covenant. His body and blood were the sacrifice that ratified that covenant. Right? So when he gave the bread and wine to his followers in the Lord's Supper, he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. 
And in a way, the judgment of AD 70 is confirmation of that covenant because it's the final nail in the coffin of the old covenant. The old covenant with all of its sacrificial rituals is done away with. The temple is judged and gone because the Jews have rejected Jesus. So verse 19 then finishes with all of the same kinds of signs that were seen at Mount Sinai when the old covenant began. Lightning and thunder and earthquake. So now we have signs that the old covenant has come to an end and a new covenant has been inaugurated by Jesus. Well, that's a walk through the text. And what I'd like to do then for most of the rest of our time is to pull together some of the things that we've seen so far this morning and in the weeks leading up to it and connect the dots for you systematically. So this is the part that's a little bit unusual. I don't usually do this kind of thing, but we're going to talk about eschatological systems, end times systems, interpretations of passages like Matthew 24 that we looked at in the fall and the book of Revelation. So as I do this, don't get bogged down in the terms. All right, the terms are not important. Just work to understand the basic ideas here. And then we'll talk about what difference these things make. So the first term I'll give you is preterism. And that term is just a fancy word that means past. It refers to the idea that some of the prophecies that we see in the New Testament are already fulfilled. They're past. If you dig into this topic, you'll find there's actually two main kinds of preterists, full and partial. Full preterists interpret the New Testament prophecies as all having been fulfilled. So according to that view, the second coming, the new heavens and new earth, the resurrection of the dead, all of that has already happened. That's not what we're seeing in scripture. That's not what we're seeing here in the book of Revelation. What we've seen is what we would call partial preterism. And that's just a fancy way of saying part of the prophecies, some of the prophecies have been fulfilled particularly in the events of A.D. 70, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And then there's the implications of that for Israel and for the church. But there are some things that are yet future. And as we get toward the end of the book of Revelation, we'll talk more about those things. Now, verse 15 in our passage this morning told us that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The kingdom of Christ is sometimes referred to as the millennium. You might have heard that word. And that term just means a thousand years. It comes from mille, which means a thousand, like a millimeter, thousandth of a meter, and annum or year. So don't get you know, freaked out by the big word. Millennium just means a thousand years. It's a long time. The only place the Bible refers to Christ's kingdom in this way is Revelation chapter 20. But we'll wait till we get there to look at that passage. That'll be a little while. So the major interpretations of eschatology or end times are based on where they place the second coming of Christ in relation to the millennium, the kingdom of Christ. Okay. So pre-millennial refers to those who believe the second coming of Christ happens before the millennium. Post-millennial refers to those who believe the second coming of Christ comes at the end of the millennium or the kingdom. And amillennial is those who believe there is no earthly millennial reign of Christ 
Otherwise, another way to say that is his reign is a spiritual one in our hearts. Okay? And what I'm convinced of and what you're hearing in this sermon series is post-millennialism. The belief that the return of Christ will happen at the end of the earthly kingdom of Christ. So, for example, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection. And he says, speaking about the resurrection, he says that Christ was the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So Christ was raised, that's his resurrection. He ascends into heaven, that, so that's AD 30. Then at his coming in the future, those who belong to Christ, that's us. That's our resurrection, okay? That's at the end, at his return. And then Paul says this, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So note Paul's time references here. It's very specific. Christ reigns as king, and as he reigns, He's putting all of his enemies under his feet. I would say the first enemy that he puts under his feet is the Jews who rejected him. Okay? And throughout time, he's putting his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy he destroys is death. Well, when is death finally defeated? In the resurrection. When all God's people are brought out of death and are given their eternal resurrection bodies in which they will live forever. And after the resurrection, when the last enemy has been destroyed, then he hands the kingdom over to the Father. He reigns over a period of time, putting his enemies under his feet, and the last one he does this to is death. That's the resurrection. And Paul says, then comes the end. The end of time comes after the resurrection, and that happens at the completion of Jesus' reign. So here's a diagram, and I'm going to do this for the various views to help you just kind of picture it. This is as simple as I could make it. But here you can see, from the time of Christ, we have the millennium, the kingdom of Christ growing throughout time until the second coming. If you're asking, where does the tribulation fit? The tribulation is describing the years leading up to A.D. 70 and all of the horrible, terrible things that went on in Judea and Jerusalem, which we've talked about plenty. And so then A.D. 70 is that final judgment on Jerusalem and the temple. Okay? But the kingdom begins and it grows through time until the return of Christ. And as I give you each of these views, I'm going I'm to let someone who represents that view describe it for you so that you're getting a fair representation. I'm not characterizing it in some way that someone wouldn't recognize. And so this is Ken Gentry defining postmillennialism. So just kind of follow along as he describes this. Postmillennialism holds that the Lord Jesus Christ establishes his kingdom on earth through his preaching and redemptive work in the first century and that he equips the church with the gospel empowers her by the Spirit, like we saw last week that, you know, the olive trees and the oil empowering the two witnesses, okay? 
and charges her with the great commission to disciple all nations. Postmillennialism expects that eventually the vast majority of men living will be saved. Increasing gospel success will gradually produce a time in history prior to Christ's return in which faith, righteousness, peace, and prosperity will prevail in the affairs of men and of nations. By the way, that's what's described in the end of Isaiah where you have this, this time period where you know, the lion lays down with the lamb. You have you know, the, the, the guy that dies at age 100 will be considered to have died you know, very young. Well, notice you still have death during that period, but it's an improved time period, okay? After an extensive era of such conditions, the Lord will return visibly, bodily, and gloriously to end history with the general resurrection and the final judgment, after which the eternal order follows. In other words, another way of saying this is, the Great Commission will be accomplished. That's all that's saying. Now, I understand if you have only been familiar with the most popular view in evangelicalism, the view that's promoted, for instance, by the left behind books and movies, postmillennialism will sound strange, okay? And I'll just ask you to consider what we've seen so far in Revelation and what we'll continue to see and let the scripture be your guide, all right? It'll, and I think it'll help us now to kind of distinguish this from other views. So I wanna take a couple of minutes to do that. And the first one I'll give you is amillennialism. All right? Amillennialism is the view that there is not a widespread earthly reign of Christ, but that the kingdom refers only to the spiritual rule of Christ in the church. So here's a diagram of amillennialism. So here is Christ's rule in the church, but notice it's spiritual. So it's his rule in the hearts of believers. Okay? And then you have a time of tribulation at the end and then the second coming of Christ. Here's how Kim Riddleberger, who is one well-known amillennialist, he, he's written about these things. He defines amillennialism this way. Amillennialists hold that the promises made to Israel, David and Abraham in the Old Testament are fulfilled by Jesus Christ and his church during this present age. The millennium is the period of time between the two advents of our Lord. So, between Jesus coming in the incarnation and between his second coming. With the thousand years of Revelation 20 being symbolic of the entire inter-adventual age. That just means from the incarnation to his return. At the first advent of Jesus Christ, Satan was bound by Christ's victory over him at Calvary and the empty tomb. The effects of this victory continued because of the presence of the kingdom of God via the preaching of the gospel and as evidenced by Jesus' miracles. Through the spread of the gospel, Satan is no longer free to deceive the nations. Christ is presently reigning in heaven during the entire period between Christ's first and second coming. At the end of the millennial age, Satan is released, a great apostasy breaks out, the general resurrection occurs, Jesus Christ returns in final judgment for all people, and he establishes a new heaven and earth. Okay, so the extent of Christ's reign is his rule in heaven and his rule in the hearts of his church. But it doesn't have a wider impact on the world. In fact, the world declines in terms of morality until the return of Christ. 
And Riddlebarger says that the millennium is anything but a golden age when lions and lambs play together. The period is marked by conflict, martyrdom, and revolt against God. Okay, so you can see some of the differences. There's similarities, but there's differences there too. And then there's another variation on this that I need to mention just to kind of be fair to them. It's held by people like Sam Storms, and Storms explains that in his view, the millennium is restricted to the blessings of the intermediate state. In other words, he says, it refers to the present reign of the souls of the deceased believers with Christ in heaven. So he doesn't see it as Christ reigning in the church that's currently living on earth in their hearts. He sees it as the reign in heaven of those who've already died. Okay, Just a different variation on it. Now let's look briefly at premillennialism. All right, premillennialism is saying that the second coming of Christ comes before the millennium. So Christ comes back, then the millennium, the kingdom of Christ begins. And premillennialism is divided into two very different kinds. First, I'll give you historic premillennialism, and then I'll describe dispensational premillennialism. So if what you're familiar with is the left behind type of approach, that's the second one, okay? So this first one, historic premillennialism, looks like this. So we're in the age over here. Then you have a, a time of tribulation and the second coming of Christ. And then the millennium is after that. And then the final judgment. Okay. That's historic premillennialism. So according to Wayne Grudem, this is his position, historic premillennialism teaches that the present church age will continue until as it nears the end, a time of great tribulation and suffering comes on the earth. After that time of tribulation, at the end of the church age, Christ will return to earth to establish a millennial kingdom. When he comes back, believers who have died will be raised from the dead. Their bodies will be reunited with their spirits, and these believers will reign with Christ on the earth for 1,000 years. During this time, Christ will be physically present on the earth in his resurrected body and will reign as king over the entire earth. Of the unbelievers who remain on earth, many will turn to Christ and be saved. Jesus will reign in perfect righteousness. and There will be peace throughout the earth. At the end of the thousand years, Satan will be loosed from the bottomless pit and will join forces with the many unbelievers. Satan will gather these rebellious people for battle against Christ, but they will be decisively defeated. Christ will then raise from the dead all the unbelievers who have died throughout history, and they will stand before him for final judgment. After the final judgment has occurred, believers will enter into the eternal state. Okay, so that's historic premillennialism. And then a different version of premillennialism, which is much more recent, uh, begins in the early 1800s, is dispensational premillennialism. This is the view of the Left Behind novels. It's the most popular view among American Christians today. It's similar to historic premillennialism, but it has some significant differences. So here's a diagram of this. So you have where we are today, and then you have the second coming of Christ with a rapture of the church. So the church is leaving the scene, okay? And then after the church has been raptured, you have the time of tribulation. And then after that, Christ comes again all the way down with the church, and then you have the millennium and then the final judgment, okay? 
Here's a description uh, taken from Paul Benware, giving some of the characteristics of dispensational premillennialism. He says, certain fundamental elements characterize this type of premillennialism, the belief that the Lord Jesus Christ returns to this earth before the establishment of his kingdom, the belief in two resurrections which are separated by a thousand years, that the millennial kingdom is a literal kingdom that will exist on this present earth, that the millennial kingdom will be established only after human kingdoms have come to an end, that the purpose of the millennial kingdom is to fulfill the covenant promises made to Abraham and his descendants. So premillennialism thus gives a much greater place to the nation of Israel than the other major millennial views. That's one of the big differences there. All right, now, now that your brain is fried, let me return to postmillennialism for a moment and I'll give you a few further descriptions of it and you can kind of in your mind compare and contrast with the other ones that we've seen. And these, these descriptions are borrowed from Ken Gentry but with some of my own wording and explanation here. Seven things. Number one, Jesus inaugurates or begins his kingdom during his earthly ministry and his death, resurrection, and ascension. Number two, Jesus' kingdom is primarily redemptive and spiritual in nature, but it has earthly, social, and political implications. Which leads to number three, Jesus' kingdom will transform the nations, societies, and cultures of the world. As more people are converted and submit to Christ, their lives change, and their nations, societies, and cultures follow. Number four, Jesus' kingdom will gradually expand to fill the earth, like leaven in a lump of dough or a tiny mustard seed that grows into a large plant. Number five, the Great Commission will be accomplished. It doesn't mean that every person, without exception, will be a Christian, but the nations will be discipled, and the knowledge of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Number six, as Jesus' kingdom expands over time, the world will experience peace and prosperity. As difficult as that is to imagine in our particular moment in time. Uh, and number seven, this time of earthly prosperity and righteousness will culminate with the return of Christ and the eternal form of the kingdom. Okay, now, what I would like to do is to give you a quick survey of some people who have held to this view. And it's a little tricky uh, because the names of the systems didn't come until later. And positions weren't well-defined for most of the beginning of church history. Um, you know, Peter and Paul weren't getting together and saying, are you pre-millennial or post-millennial? They, they just weren't thinking in those categories at that time. So as you look at church history, different doctrines get defined typically when there's a crisis of some kind or pressure. So for example, when you read the Nicene Creed, it's much more detailed about Jesus and his nature than the Apostles' Creed is. Why? Because when the Council of Nicaea met, they were hashing out some of those details because they were at a crisis point about who Jesus is and what his nature is. And so that happens through church history. And eschatology was kind of like not at the top of the priority list. So it didn't happen until later that it really gets fleshed out into these systems. Sometimes all we can tell is that someone believed the kingdom would be, for example, after Christ returned. Or we can tell, you know, their view of the present age is optimistic or it's pessimistic. 
Are things getting better and better as Jesus rules and reigns, or are things getting worse and worse until he comes back? And my purpose in showing you this, again, I know this feels a little academic this morning. I just want to help you see that what we're saying about the book of Revelation is not some novel idea. It's been around a long time, and a lot of respected pastors and theologians have believed this. Just, just because somebody believed it in church history, though, doesn't make it true. Okay? What's the final standard? Always, it's God's word. We've got to let God's word speak. That's why... As we've gone through the book of Revelation, I'm constantly dragging you back into the Old Testament to say, look where John's getting his language. Look what he's saying. Look where he's pulling this from. And so take this with a grain of salt as I give you some historical figures. The Bible's the standard. It's the authority. But we can learn from those who've gone before us. All right. In the early fourth century, Athanasius, one of the church fathers, wrote, Behold how the Savior's doctrine is everywhere increasing. While all idolatry and everything opposed to the faith of Christ is daily dwindling and losing power and failing, now that the divine appearing of the word of God is come, the darkness of the idols prevails no more, and all parts of the world in every direction are illumined by his teaching. St. Augustine had similar expectations of growth. It's not to say that he was formally a post-millennialist. Things weren't that well defined yet in his day. But he had the kind of optimism regarding Christ's kingdom that is embodied in postmillennialism. And by the way, I, I think it's hard for us to see this for a couple of reasons. Number one, we've been conditioned by what is the most popular approach to end times today, that the left behind approach, that dispensational premillennialism, to expect the worst, to be pessimistic. We think everything's only going to get worse and worse until the church is pulled out and Jesus returns. And number two, we don't understand history. What statistically gets called Christianity is very broad, right? It it includes Roman Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant. That's not a very helpful big category. But if we narrowed it down to just Protestants and inside of that to just evangelicals, where we might fit in a category today, we, we would... If if I just said, what would you think has happened to evangelicals in the last 50 years? We would probably say, I think that number is shrinking. I mean, that's what it feels like as we look around at our culture. But globally, here's what has happened to evangelicals. In 1970, 98 million. Today, over 300 million. That's just the last 50 years. And while statistics don't tell us everything and statistics can't see the heart, The reality is that Christ's kingdom is growing. It's wheat and tares, as Jesus said, but it's growing. If we move forward in time, then, to the era of the Reformation and the Puritan era, we find a lot of individuals who held this kind of optimism about Christ's kingdom. In a commentary on Isaiah chapter 9, John Calvin wrote this. He says, God not only protects and defends the kingdom of Christ, but also extends its boundaries far and wide and then preserves and carries it forward in uninterrupted progression to eternity. We must not judge of its stability from the present appearances of things, but from the promise which assures us of its continuance and of its constant increase. And then when he was writing about Psalm 72, verse 11, Calvin said, This verse contains a more distinct statement of the truth that the whole world will be brought in subjection to the authority of Christ. 
the nations will be convinced that nothing is more desirable than to receive from him laws and ordinances. That's the nations discipled to obey the commands of Christ. Calvin's typical of a number of the reformers and their post-millennial hope was picked up by the Puritans in the 16th and 17th centuries. Thomas Brightman wrote a commentary on the book of Revelation that highlighted scripture's promise of an era of victory for the church on earth. William Perkins wrote that the nations being blessed through the spread of the gospel would take place, quote, before the end of the world we know. The popular Puritan preacher in Boston, John Cotton, wrote several works advancing the post-millennial view. And it's been noted that his letter writing with Oliver Cromwell in England shows that Cotton's post-millennialism helped to motivate leaders like Cromwell to promote a faithful application of Christ's kingdom to their vocation. Other leaders of the era who held a post-millennial hope, George Gillespie, Robert Bailey, John Owen, Thomas Manton, John Flavel, Moses Wall, John Dixon, William Greenhill, James Durham, Richard Sibbs, Samuel Rutherford, William Googe, Joseph Carroll, Edward Reynolds, Stephen Charnock. You're hearing names of people that you hear me quote and some of the guys that we've studied in the Puritans as we went through that series in Sunday school. Dutch theologians like Johannes Coxeus, Hermann Witsius, Wilhelmus Abrockel that we learned about a couple of weeks ago. In the 18th century, Thomas Boston, Matthew Henry, the great commentator. Here's one thing Matthew Henry wrote. He says, instead of being worshiped and served among the Jews only, a small people in the corner of the world, he will be served and worshiped in all places, from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same. In every place, in every part of the world, incense shall be offered to his name. Nations shall be discipled and shall speak of the wonderful works of God. Christ's kingdom shall be extended very far and greatly enlarged. Jonathan Edwards, way too much there for me to quote for you this morning. John Erskine, John Wesley, John Newton that wrote Amazing Grace, Charles Simeon, Timothy Dwight, Samuel Hopkins. In the 19th century, you get commentators like Robert Haldane, Thomas Chalmers, Robert Murray Machane, Patrick Fairbairn, Charles Hodge, B.B. Warfield, W.G.T. Shedd, Robert Dabney that was the chaplain to uh, Stonewall Jackson in the Civil War and wrote a systematic theology. John Eliot was a missionary to the North American natives. And in the foreword to one of his missionary tracts, Edward Reynolds, who agreed with him on this idea, wrote this. He said, it is the ardent prayer of all that love the Lord Jesus in sincerity that his kingdom be enlarged and the glorious light of the gospel may shine forth into all nations that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. Catch this that the stone cut without hands may become so great a mountain as to fill the earth, that the idols may be utterly abolished and the gods of the earth famished, that all the isles of the heathen may worship the only true God. Now, that's the missionary emphasis that came with this view. Listen, the, the great missionary movements of the 18th and 19th century were motivated by this same thing, by this post-millennial hope. Men like George Whitfield. David Livingston, John Payton, Baptist missionaries like William Carey and Andrew Fuller. And it's the theme of some of our great hymns of the faith. 
men of this era wrote things like this. Isaac Watts wrote, Jesus shall reign. So Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does his successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moons shall wax and wane no more. Or Isaac Watts's hymn that we sing at Christmas, Joy to the World. So joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness. Charles Wesley, brother to John Wesley, his hymn, Rejoice the Lord is King. His kingdom cannot fail. He rules o'er earth and heaven. He sits at God's right hand till all his foes submit and bow to his command and fall beneath his feet. Or the song that we sang this morning already, Edward Perrinet's All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name. Let every kindred, every tribe on this terrestrial ball to him all majesty ascribe and crown him Lord of all. And we need to understand that this post-millennial hope goes beyond just theology and worship too, into all areas of life, every vocation. The Puritan settlement of New England was envisioned as a city on a hill for that very reason. In literature, you have men like John Milton expressing it in his writing. Scientists like Sir Robert Boyle were motivated by advancing the kingdom of Christ. Politicians like Oliver Cromwell conceived of their work as post-millennial in nature. For a lot of people, the British sea power and colonization efforts were driven primarily by a desire to extend the kingdom of Christ. Greg Bonson sums it up well. He says, all in all, post-millennialism brought a total vision for subduing the world to Jesus Christ, beginning with widespread conversions and continuing into the reform and prosperity of ecclesiastical, intellectual, and social affairs. In more recent times, the 1900s, you have men like J. Gresham Machen, John Murray, Marcellus Kick, Greg Bonson, David Chilton, R.J. Rush Dooney, Gary North. Gary North just died a couple of months ago. They have been advancing this understanding of what scripture teaches. A lot of people today, though, have a perception that post-millennialism is crazy and that it, it's not viable anymore and that nobody believes that anymore. That's just simply not the case. There's actually now quite a recovery going on of what has been called the bright hope of post-millennialism. So if you're looking for guys today who hold to this and teach it that you can learn from, Ken Gentry, extremely helpful commentaries and books. Gary DeMar, great books. He's got a great podcast where he deals with all kinds of questions and objections that come up. George Grant, Peter Lightheart, Keith Matheson, Ian Murray, Andrew Sandlin, R.C. Sproul, Jared Longshore, Joe Boot, Jeff Durbin, James White, Doug Wilson, all these guys are, uh, are reading scripture this way with this hope in mind. A way to understand this, among the various views of how to understand the book of Revelation and all that the Bible teaches about these things, there's kind of, you could group it into three categories about expectations. One group would be pessimistic. I think that everything in this world will continue to get worse and worse and worse until Christ returns. That group sees the importance of evangelism, 
but mainly because we're trying to load up the rescue boats with as many people as possible before the Titanic sinks completely. No point in rearranging the deck chairs on the ship or polishing the brass. The ship is going down. The most important thing is to make sure that you escape. So it has motivated evangelism, and that's a good thing. Some are detached. They think that the kingdom of Christ, because it's just spiritual or heavenly in nature, really doesn't have anything to do with this world. We're spiritual beings with Christ reigning in our hearts. But his kingdom is limited then to the interior life of believers. And so a lot of people in this group would argue that we really shouldn't expect or even desire that God's moral standards would be held in our society, in the secular world. There's two kingdoms and they are detached. As Christians, our home is in Christ's kingdom and he rules in our hearts, but we're living in the kingdom of the world where Christ does not rule. Postmillennialism fits into the third and final group, optimistic. The kingdom of Christ is present and it is growing. Not all at once, but like yeast, like a mustard seed. Jesus was serious when he gave the Great Commission and he will bring it to completion. It may take another three or 4,000 years, but Christ's kingdom will fill the earth. And that's what we're working toward. So our boat is not so much a rescue boat as it is a landing craft establishing a beachhead and then advancing to take the territory. It's not a rescue helicopter on an evacuation mission. It's an attack helicopter pushing the front forward, taking territory. So we have every expectation that the rulers of this world should bow the knee to Christ that God's law is the only acceptable standard, that truth is not relative because God is one. And when we see things going the wrong direction, like we see in our culture today, that's not the failure of Christ's kingdom. It's a reminder that his victory comes paradoxically through suffering. We take the long view, a short-term downturn doesn't negate the long-term success of the kingdom. So let me talk for just a minute here about what that optimism looks like in a couple different areas. First, optimism in evangelism and missions. The post-millennial hope motivates evangelism and missions. It reminds us that God's the one who changes hearts. He does it in his timing. His expectation is that over time, the gospel will be successful. It's not the power of our rhetoric that convinces or persuades. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. God will save his people and he chooses to use us to do so. And we have the confidence that he will be successful in accomplishing it. But the kingdom of Christ is not just concerned with evangelism and missions. It makes a difference in the culture and in our vocations, a difference in the nations as they bow to Christ. So listen to the language of Psalm 72, describing the reign of the messianic king. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. 
May he, that's the, the king, the messianic king, so Christ, may he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So first of all, notice the time frame. While the sun endures, as long as the moon throughout all generations, till the moon be no more. This happens during the present age, before the end of all things. Second, notice how earthy it all is. Sun, moon, rain, mown grass, showers, sea to sea, river, earth. And notice the effect of the king's reign. They fear or respect the king. His effect is like rain on the grass. It causes growth and flourishing. So the righteous flourish. Peace abounds. He rules over the whole earth. So we look forward to the day when this characterizes the earth, when the nations have come to fear Christ and follow his law. And the result is that the earth, the nations, the cultures, the societies all flourish because they're following him. So what does it look like for the economy to be based on God's principles? What would it look like for our government to be limited to what God's design for a government is? What would it look like if education began with the fear of the Lord? What would it look like if our society valued and promoted biblical families? What would foreign policy look like if it was submitted to Christ's rule? What would your work industry look like if the advancement of Christ's kingdom was a priority? What would it look like if our justice system was built on God's law? See, these are the things that you and I need to be considering and working toward in our own tiny spheres of influence today, advancing the kingdom of Christ. Optimism in evangelism and mission, optimism in culture and vocations, and third, optimism in suffering. The victory of Christ comes, paradoxically, through suffering. Christ suffered on the cross the greatest evil act in the history of the world, and by that, he won the ultimate victory and brought about the greatest good. God specializes in that, and we as his people are called to do the same. So post-millennialism is not triumphalistic in the sense of saying that there's going to be no suffering. Quite the opposite. Victory comes through suffering. So we're not surprised by suffering. We take the long view, the eternal perspective. Let me just finish by giving you four ways in which this perspective on Christ's kingdom should change the way we live. Number one, read your Bible this way. If you begin to read your Bible with an eye toward God's promises of victory, you'll find that it changes your perspective on this life. So many of the Psalms, many of the prophets describe the days of Christ's kingdom and the blessing that comes with it, and it'll give you a new way to understand the big picture of Scripture, a deeper understanding of the message of the Bible, and a deeper understanding of just what Jesus accomplished in his earthly ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. The cross and the empty grave brings not just personal salvation for you, but cosmic transformation that you get to be part of. Second, it changes the way you view your calling. What is it that God has called you to do? 
What is he accomplishing in it? Are you called to a particular workplace? What is God doing there that you can be part of? Are you called to invest your full time and efforts in the home? Don't be deceived into viewing that work as simply daily chores that must be done. Put it in cosmic perspective. See your home as a kingdom outpost where Christ rules and live faithfully in it. You're training your children. It's a kingdom boot camp. You're preparing the next wave of troops for the kingdom of Christ. Are you a student? Even if you don't know what you're preparing for, you know that God wants to use you to advance his kingdom. So gain the knowledge, understanding, and wisdom to be prepared to do that, whatever it is, when you get there. Third, conduct your citizenship this way. If Christ's kingdom is not just his rule in your heart, if it really makes a difference in the world, then live as a citizen with this perspective. That means you vote with the kingdom of Christ in mind. It means that you support legislation that aligns with God's law. It means that you speak truthfully, giving God's perspective on the difficult social issues of our day without wavering. It means that you love what God loves and you hate what God hates. Serve the king gladly and wholeheartedly. And finally, worship your king in this way. Over and over we hear the language of scripture speaking of the nations coming to worship. All people worshiping Christ the king. So when we gather to worship, worship with this hope in mind. Worship knowing that the king you worship wins. John Calvin comments on the Lord's Prayer when we pray, your kingdom come. He says this, as the kingdom of God is continually growing and advancing to the end of the world, we must pray every day that it may come. For to whatever extent iniquity abounds in the world, to such an extent the kingdom of God, which brings along with it perfect righteousness, is not yet come. So we pray, your kingdom come, which means your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May the kingdom of Christ come more fully. May it expand and grow and permeate all the institutions and, and societies and cultures of this world so that God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. So let's heed Calvin's advice. And would you pray aloud with me this morning? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.